The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. And he is also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Good. Great. Be Blessed All Souls Day to you. Absolutely. Man to you, Father. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Father, we have uh, some emails, of course, that we would like to attempt to answer tonight. Uh, the first one has to do with a uh, current event from a viewer who references uh, President Biden meeting with Pope Francis. Uh, he says that uh, the Pope pronounced Biden a good Catholic and said that Biden should continue receiving the Holy Eucharist. And this viewer says that either the president is lying or the Pope has once and for all abandoned the church's teaching about taking the life of an unborn child. Since this has now been made public, if the Pope doesn't respond, then I'm afraid this Pope will destroy what little is left of traditional Roman Catholicism. Could you please comment on this, Father Jenkins? Well, sure, I'd be glad to. Um, actually, with regard to the alternatives, whether... Uh, you know, Biden is lying, or Francis is busy destroying the church. I'd say they're both very true. Both probably. <laughs> I mean, it's certain that that Francis is attacking the Catholic Church at every turn. There's no doubt about it. And his objective is to bring bring Vatican II to its fruition, and just completely lay waste the church. Uh, Saint Pius X was being congratulated by a cardinal back in. Um, 19, probably after the, the um, decree uh, against modernism, Papias uh, X issued Pascenti Domenici Regis against the errors of the modernists. He condemned those errors by the encyclical uh, Pascenti in 1907. And it was either after the issuance of that encyclical or after 1910 when he issued the oath against modernism that a cardinal was congratulating St. Pius X that he had vanquished modernism and St. Pius X allegedly shook his head sadly and said that they would return in half a century and lay waste the church. That's the expression that seems to be uh, the, uh, corresponding to what he said. Francis is exactly trying to carry that out and to consummate that, that whole laying waste to the church and its church traditions. So there's no doubt about it that Francis is trying to eradicate uh, the true Roman Catholic faith and its practice, the true Roman Catholic religion. Uh, this is what he's all about. This is why he is where he is. This is why he was chosen to be where he is right now, to do what he's doing. And uh, whether whether uh, resident Biden is, is lying or not, uh, depends on his mental capacity and whether he really could understand what he was being told. And it's possible, knowing what a narcissist he is, that he actually believes what he's saying. And he says that Francis told him, you're a good Catholic, um, keep receiving the host or the Eucharist, right? Francis might uh, might have said that, certainly. Um, the very fact that he met with uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, and he was so cozy uh, with her, and never once objected to her uh, radical abortionist positions, and all the blood on her hands. I mean, these politicians have swam through rivers of blood of babies in order to get what they are right now. Uh, and that is no less true of, of uh, Biden himself. And so... Um, Realizing that they um, have, are essentially uh, responsible for the murders of millions and millions of children, uh, we could not put it past a Biden or a Pelosi to lie. Um, but at the same time, 
in Biden's case, we have to uh, question whether or not he's even Campos Mentis and whether he might actually believe that Francis told him, uh, you know, keep up the good work, you're a good Catholic, keep receiving the Eucharist. Um, Francis has already shown very clearly that he has no regard for the Eucharist or Catholic belief in the Holy Eucharist. Um, and so uh, for him to be encouraging uh, blasphemy, I mean, he himself has pronounced many blasphemies. For him to be encouraging sacrilege, he's done that already also. In Amoris Laetitia, he's already encouraging sacrilege. So uh, there's absolutely nothing to prevent him from having said that to Joe Biden. Um, <clears throat> and there's actually nothing to prevent Joe Biden from just interpreting you know, Francis's uh, friendly, uh, cordial welcome to the Vatican as being an endorsement mm -hmm. of his policies. So could be either way. Yeah. Okay. Could be both ways, actually. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, well, Father, we have several questions about the Novus Ordo Church. Mm -hmm. And uh, first one, viewer writes in and says that some priests are celebrating the Novus Ordo Mise in Latin mm -hmm. and Ad Orientum. What does Father Jenkins think about this kind of hybridization? Well, uh, there were there were drinking songs in uh, medieval uh, Europe at some of the universities. The the young uh, men in the universities of Paris and Padua and so on would get together and they they'd um, celebrate uh, by singing singing Latin Carabina Barana, right? The Carabine. Barani, the um, the uh, raucous drinking songs. We're in long one Latin, you know. The Latin doesn't make it uh, holy of its very nature. It's an abuse of a beautiful language, but the it's abuse of any language really to sing something blasphemous, sacrilegious, or immoral, impure. Um, so the fact that the the Novus Ordo is in Latin does not in itself sanctify it. It's what is being said, um, and what is being said in the Latin, uh, if it is in fact uh, corresponding to what we know uh, of the translations, and it does, right? I mean, th there is a correspondence there. Then it's just wrong. It's just wrong. It's like, I, I mean, I, I think of the Novus Ordo as being the sacrifice of Cain, offering up the rotten vegetables to God, uh, as opposed to the sacrifice of Abel, which was uh, mirroring the traditional Mass and the true sacrifice. I think the Novus Ordo Mise is akin to the, the sacrifice of Cain, which was very un unacceptable to God, um, because it uh, actually doesn't even claim to be the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. It doesn't claim to be that. It remembers it. It recalls it, but it doesn't claim to be it. But then the Protestant liturgy also recalls the sacrifice of, of, of Calvary, but it never claims to be that sacrifice. Um, so it is that we have um, the modern presbyters, um, you know, who are presiding over a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. That's what the Novus Ordo claims to be. That's all it claims to be, not a sacrifice of reparation for sin, at which... It must be, if it is to be the sacrifice of Calvary. So look at the offertory uh, prayers of the of the new rite, whether in Latin or in English, and you see that the clear statement of the offertory, which is a statement saying stating what exactly we are doing here, what is the purpose of this, um, those have been changed radically. Uh, the traditional offertory prayers, the significant ones about the offering of the host and, and the chalice, have been radically, not just changed, but replaced entirely. And they say nothing, those two prayers say nothing of the sacrifice of Calvary or the offering of, of the Mass as a repertory sacrifice. So um, I would say um, there are Novus Ordo clergymen who are, are using the Latin New Order and uh, facing uh, the East in doing so, and they're trying to uh, kind of uh, give it the veneer of, of tradition. And they may very well be well motivated. Maybe this is what they 
they're hoping for, this is what they want, but it's still the Novus Ordo. I mean, it, it's like dressing up the, uh, the mannequin, you know, in, in, your, in your Holy Mother of the Church in her, the, the mother's clothes, trying to make it look traditional, but it's still not your Holy Mother of the Church, and it's still not the Holy Mass. It's not the sacrifice of Calvary. So if somebody really wants tradition, they should not just go for the trappings of tradition, they should go with the actual traditional Latin Mass. Um, well, I don't know what more to say about yeah. it. Okay, well, that's, that's the Novus Ordo Mass, rather, but uh, we have a, a question about uh, Eucharistic miracles in the Novus Ordo. Mm. Um, this viewer says, a friend of theirs claims that there are, quote, many Eucharistic miracles coming out of the Novus Ordo Church communities, and her friend questions the fact that uh, this friend doubts that claim. So this viewer says, of course I believe in the Eucharistic miracles that have been proven over the centuries, but I do question that the conciliar church's sacrilegious worship would produce many miracles. Such events, it seems to me, would connote God's approval and that people would not be inspired to go to the traditional Latin Mass, but rather stay put in the Novus Ordo since many miracles are occurring there. Uh, she also says, moreover, how can we trust those who are given authority to judge the authenticity of the miracles when they themselves appear to be outright heretics and apostates? How would you respond to that? I'd say she's right, absolutely. The writer is, is uh, as far as I'm concerned, right in all accounts. Remember that uh, if the Novus Ordo is what it, what it is, I mean, what, what, what it clearly is, if you really study it for what it is. I mean, if you study what the people said, what the men said about what they were creating, then you study their creation, the Novus Ordo Mise, then you look at the consequences of it and how the church was poisoned by it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it, it, is, it is not the traditional mass. It is, it is poison. It was poison for the faith, right? And one may say, well, you know, there are people, there are devout people who go to it. Well, that's fine. There are devout people that go to the Lutheran liturgy, too. There are devout people who may go to the mosque. So a traditional Catholic was talking about a Muslim friend he knows, and, and the, the traditional Catholic was saying, this Muslim friend of his has a great love for God. He's very impressed by his real great devotion to Allah. Yeah, that can be very, very... Uh, I mean, we know many Protestant ministers who... who um, many, I don't know, some anyway, who are very pro-life and very dedicated to our Lord, right, in the name of Jesus, and they profess our Lord's name and devotion to him publicly, fearlessly. Um, and we know Novus Ordo priests, and even maybe some traditional priests who don't necessarily have that courage, right? So uh, the fact is that if the Novus Ordo is what, in the light of Catholic tradition, it, it is what the light of Catholic tradition shows it to be, a false form of worship, which is not the Catholic Mass, the sacrifice of Calvary, then of course the devil could actually pull all kinds of tricks there. I mean, this is what he does, right? He can falsifies these things. He mimics God. That's the point. That's why he's called the ape of God. Could he produce some kind of preternatural effect at a Novus Ordo? Sure he could. Why not? Can't he even induce in non-Catholics the stigmata? Yeah, there are cases where that has been done. There are cases in history where even nuns in convents like Port Royal, Royal have, have manifested some kind of preternatural signs where the church investigated and found that they were completely bogus and even diabolical. Wow. So, I mean, you can't go by that. And you can't go by the reports of those who uh, manifestly uh, you know, are heterodox, at least to say, if not heretical in the faith. Um, and um, furthermore, uh, you know, one, one can say, oh, there are many examples of these miracles, and, you know, but that doesn't make it so. Um, just because somebody says it, uh, you know, years and years ago, before I was ordained, and that was a few years ago, in fact, this might have been about 50 years ago now, um, a young man, uh, well, let's see, the, the Novus Ordo uh, had just come out, right? And uh, some the very devout, conservative, young Catholic man, um, again, who I admire for his devotion, 
But he was telling me about something that had happened at a local church. And um, when I say local, I mean local to where I was at the time in California. He said, all of a sudden, the, the New Order liturgy stopped, and the celebrant held up the corporal, and he looked very astonished. He said the corporal was covered with grime and torn to shreds. And he held that up for everybody to see. He was astonished that it had just kind of adopted this, this, this form uh, before his very eyes, that it was soiled terribly and just all ripped up. <clears throat> and the young man said, you see, that proves a real presence. That proves it's valid. Okay, assuming that happened, which is a big assumption. I mean, maybe it was staged, who knows what, what came of it. But uh, how on earth does that prove the real presence? I think it proved the exact opposite. I think everybody in that church should have leaped up and run out of there and said, my goodness, this is what, you know, our Lord is telling us something and it isn't good about this Novus Ordo here. So people interpret things the way they want to, clearly. Uh, did that happen? At your time, I, I believe that this young man, well, he certainly believed it happened. I thought, well, it might well have happened, but it certainly didn't portend what he wanted to read into it. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, well, more than skeptical about it. And I, I would think that uh, if there were something preternatural that took place there, it would be not from heaven. Okay. All right. <clears throat> then moving on. By the way, yes. you know, you go to these Novosordos, right? Mm. It's supposed to have Eucharistic miracles. Mm. And look, they're handing these hosts out all over. Right. Particles of the host are falling on the floor, people walking all over them. Okay? Uh, so we're going to associate miracles with sacrilege? Yeah. yeah that, that does not come from heaven. Right. Right. Uh, okay, Father, another question about the Novus Ordo. Um, this viewer says there are those who argue that Vatican II could not promulgate heresy because Paul VI had been a true pope. Uh, they say that he, Paul VI, did not try to get rid of the Latin Mass, still permitted it on a very limited basis, and that his conclave had never been legally challenged at all by anyone in the Curia. Therefore, the Sedevicantists are supposedly schismatics and living in a dream that has no end game to it. Um, Father, how would you uh, respond to this? He says, could it be argued that one does not need evidence specifically than to say that these Vatican II popes have taught heresy universally? Yes, it is what it is. I mean, the people who argue like that are just trying to get around around uh, the, the obvious. They're trying to avoid the obvious. Right? The church is in a state of crisis, and it's in a, a state of crisis because of modernism, exactly as St. Pius X said. And uh, modernism is the complexity of the synthesis of all heresies, exactly as St. Pius X says. That's what we're dealing with right now. So, okay, we're going to assume, he, he's making an assumption, of course, well, I mean, nobody questioned the conclave of Paul VI. That's what he's saying, or at least the, none of the curia did. Well, how, do we, how does he know that? He doesn't really know that, okay. He just doesn't know that anyone did, okay. But uh, in any case, uh, we know now the chicanery that went into those elections, right? Uh, we know the, the monkeying around they did, right, <laughs> to, in order to um, set up that election. I mean, the Democrats could not have done any better. In, uh, in 1963, with Paul VI, than the, uh, than the Democrats did in uh, 2020 with... The, the presidential elections then, they couldn't have done any, they'd been more obvious. In fact, I'd say the 1963 election of Paul VI was even more obvious than the fraud involved in the 2020 election for president here in this country. Uh, massive fraud. Um, but in, uh, in 1963, uh, with the changes that had come in, it, it was pretty clear that... Uh, the, the, the deck was stacked, right, for a modernist to be chosen and come to power. But regardless, I mean, even if Paul VI was an honest-to-goodness legitimate Roman pontiff, uh, you know, it still doesn't make what he does uh, legal. doesn't make it right. Uh, 
I mean, there are people who, who are just so stuck on canon law that they, they want to interpret canon law to answer all the questions these days. Canon law is one aspect of Catholic tradition, okay? It's an important aspect of Catholic tradition, yes. But canon law needs to be interpreted and needs to be applied. And canon law is understood by the tradition of the church. You go back in history, you look at the history of the church, and there you understand how the church actually interpreted and applied her own laws. How the church judged her own laws in their application of things that people did, you know? So, I mean, somebody can wave around the 1917 Pio Benedictine Code of Canon Law as though they were some sort of a self-anointed canon lawyer. But even if they were a canon lawyer, they would just be a lawyer. That's all they are, just lawyers, right? And above lawyers, there are judges. And above judges, there are other judges, right? And so you have this, uh, uh, this, this cadre of people who have gotten their hands on a code of canon law, and suddenly they've got doctorates in canon law, you know, you think. And even if they did, they couldn't pronounce anything. They would give, even doctors of canon law can only give opinions of things, you know. So they've got to stop this nonsense. Um, I mean, if you got an entire set of the Ohio Revised, Revised Code of Canon Law, and it filled up one entire wall in your room, a room of your house, and you had all the fancy bookshelves behind glass to show that you were serious about this, and you could actually attest that you read every single word in the Ohio Revised Code, and therefore you said you are a doctor of law, <clears throat> and that you therefore are over and above any, any judge you know, in Ohio, because you know the, the Ohio Revised Code, people would laugh, laugh you to scorn. They'd laugh you silly. They'd say, this man is out of his mind. <clears throat> well, why can people pick up a 1917 Code of Canon Law and start pronouncing on it? And so they actually knew everything about the churches that the church had to say about it. The, the, again, the Code of Canon Law actually has to be judged by the church itself. And, the and what judgment we do have is in Catholic tradition. Okay, how did the church judge these situations in light of her own law? Because her law is not just ecclesiastical law. She base, it's based on divine law. It's based on the divine positive law, the commands of Christ, and the commands of God in the Old Testament. Uh, it's based on the, the natural law of God. It's, there's a higher law that dictates ecclesiastical law and to which ecclesiastical law must bow, right? So that's where the whole point of Epicaea comes, where the, the actual natural law and divine positive law trump, as it were, ecclesiastical law. Because ecclesiastical law is human law that cannot account for all the different possible circumstances. <laughs> that's what Epicaea is all about. The principle of law. It's actually written right into the Code of Canon Law. In, in the interpretation of the law. So my point here, Tom, is, uh, you know, people uh, reach for codes of canon law and say, oh, well, this must be so and this must be so because this is how I interpret the law to apply to this particular case. The fact is we've had a revolution that has taken place in the church and the modernists who have taken control have actually told us that. They said so. Cardinal Swainens, a great modernist, called Vatican II the French Revolution in the Church. You know, when you get indications like that, from the modernists have actually come to power in the Novus Ordo, and they're telling you outright, we've carried out a revolution. This wasn't a real bona fide insurrection, okay, of modernists in the Church. And, and you say, well, I don't know, let's go check canon law and see what it says about this. You're ignoring reality. And someone who's ignoring reality is, is set up to, to become kind of a crazy person because that's what crazy persons do. Insanity is being completely out of touch with reality. We have to face the fact that there's been a modernist revolution of the church. We were warned about it ahead of time by St. Pius X. And uh, we've actually seen it happen. And we've seen the results of it. And they've been devastating to the church, devastating to the faith, devastating to souls. We have to face that. And uh, we simply have to re return to practicing the traditional faith uh, in, the, in, a, in the traditional Catholic religion. I mean, 
As far as the individual points that he's made, if you want to read down them again, uh, why don't you read that again and I'll just make a brief comment. Because the, the person actually cites several different points there mm -hmm. in that. He says that uh, one of the arguments is that uh, Vatican II could not promulgate heresy because Paul VI had been a true pope. Okay, how does that mean that Vatican II could not promulgate heresy? He just makes that pronouncement. How does he know that? He says, well, Paul VI was a true pope. I guess what he's leaving out there, well, Paul VI actually confirmed Vatican II and the doctrines of Vatican II, right? So that couldn't have happened if... Uh, Paul VI, a true pope, confirmed and promulgated uh, the documents of Vatican II. Right? That's what he's saying. But what he's actually saying is like a boomerang, because if, in fact, Vatican II did, did promulgate heresy, then it would cast doubt as to whether Paul VI was a true pope, right? He's just starting out by assuming he was. Okay? Uh, so his argument is upside down and backwards. The question is, well, if Vatican II did did in fact uh, promulgate heresy, then its confirmation and promulgation of Paul VI would cast doubt on his papacy, whether he was lit or even question whether he might have lost the papacy at that very moment, right? There are other conclusions possible here. But I mean, I don't know anybody who's actually come out and, well, I mean, I'm sure there must be somebody who's come out and said Vatican II actually promulgated explicit heresy. Okay, so what's he talking about? Um, is he actually setting up a straw man and knocking it down? Has he actually had some worthy ecclesiastic tell him that Vatican II promulgated uh, heresy and, and is, is making a case for it? I asked Archbishop Lefebvre about that very case with regard to the last major document of Vatican II, Dignitati Sumane Parasoni. We talked about that recently. And Dignitati Sumane Parasoni, the dignity of the human person, uh, promulgated on December 7, 1965, the day before Vatican II ended. Uh, I asked Archbishop Lefebvre, you know, did this in fact promulgate heresy? And he said, implicitly, yes. Implicitly, it did. But that's as far as Monsignor Lefebvre himself would go. He would not say that it did actually explicitly promulgate heresy. So, I really don't know offhand uh, that I think about it after 43-something years of the priesthood, of any of the, even St. Vicantus have come out and said, Vatican II promulgated explicit heresy. So, again, I'm, I'm trying to think about what, what, what his point is here. But, I'm sorry, uh, if I sound a little frustrated, it's because I hear these arguments and I, I think that they're, they're just like blowing smoke mm -hmm. and, and obscuring the facts and keeping people from facing reality. Mm -hmm. But what does he say next? Uh, next one, what, um, says that Paul VI did not try to get rid of the Latin Mass, but still permitted it on a very limited basement. He basis. tried to get rid of it. I mean, you look at the original document, the Apostolic Cities, and he simply says, we want this, Volumus, we want this, he says, okay? And he wants this to become the norm now, right? And for 20 years, I don't know how old this gentleman is, but for 20 years, we had to fight that. that everywhere we went, we were being told, you can't have this traditional Mass. Okay, maybe an old priest in a nursing home could have it, but you cannot publicly offer this traditional Mass. It has to go. This is in fact, he can, he can interpret all he wants what Paul VI intended, but the fact is that's how it was applied. And uh, he backed them up. He backed up the modernists. They came from Vatican II, they employed Vatican II, they put it into effect, the very same bishops who were at Vatican II came back, they implemented it, and this is what they did. And when the new Mass was promulgated, they tried to enforce it ruthlessly and eradicate the traditional Mass. That's a fact. From 1960, 1970 to 1988, um, that was their modus operandi, to eradicate the traditional Mass, completely it. So he can say what he wants about that, what Paul VI intended. But we know what was actually happening back then. We lived through it. We're mm -hmm. dealing with it day by day. So, okay. Um, then he also says, uh, as you mentioned, the, the conclave has never been legally challenged at all by anyone in the curia. How does he know that? 
I mean, you know, he might say, well, we don't have any evidence of it. He might say, I have. He might say he has no evidence of it, Mm. right? But uh, the fact is, you know, even though even though one might argue that, but I mean, here's here's another question I have: Um, Who has really raised that? I mean, so what? I mean, has anybody ever said to you? I don't think anybody ever said to me. Uh, oh, Paul VI wasn't legitimately a pope because there are those who, uh, in the Curia, who questioned the conclave that elected him. I've, n- I've never heard that. So where is he getting this stuff, and why does it matter? Um, in the light of the fact that we're facing a revolution. Um, I, g- I guess what he's really trying to say is you can't question whether Paul VI was a true pope. I guess he, that's what he's trying to get at. And I, I don't think he's making a very good case for it. Yeah. Um, do I claim to know for a fact that Paul VI was not a true pope? No. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't have the ecclesiastical competence for it. I, I doubt it seriously myself, right? Um, but to say, when can someone prove for a fact that Paul VI was not a validly elected pontiff? I would say no. I don't see how one could prove that. Mm-hmm. So, what's his point? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I think talk like this simply keeps people from facing the fact that we're, this is that modernism is the complexest of all heresies, quote unquote, Pius X, and that it is devastating the church and devastating the faith and devastating souls and taking them away from Christ. And uh, the thing is, we have to return to Catholic tradition in our faith, in our practice of the faith, practicing the Catholic religion, the traditional mass and the sacraments, and so on, the traditional catechisms. Mm-hmm. And um, what he says has nothing to do with that. Okay. But people can misinterpret it and be impressed by it and be misled by it, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, Father, we had uh, a related question that you kind of touched on a little bit earlier, but... Um, if you wrote in and asked if the Pope himself is supposed to be subject to canon law? Uh, the Pope is not subject to canon law. In the sense that he can dispense from any, any part of the canon law. Except this, except what I said before. You know, canon law is not just ecclesiastical law. Canon law has to reflect divine law. It has to reflect the positive law, uh, the direct commands of Christ, right? Of God the Father in the Old Testament. Um, and it has to reflect the natural law. If ecclesiastical law somehow comes into contradiction uh, with um, with divine law, then ecclesiastical human law has to bend and uh, has to yield to the divine law. You know, here we have in the new Code of Canon Law of 1983, um, we have the um, prescriptions that you know Catholic clergy, so-called, can give uh, the communion wafer to non-Catholics under certain circumstances. This has always been condemned by the Church traditionally as sacrilege to do that, which destroys the very meaning of communion. The first aspect of communion means having communion of faith, right? That's the unity of the church. The very first mark of the church is unity. Uh, The unity of the church depends upon unity in faith, unity in worship, and unity in rule. And uh, so the new code of canon law coming out under John Paul II, 1983, uh, says that... uh, under certain circumstances, the Catholic clergy can give the communion wafer to non-Catholics who do not have the unity of faith, do not have the unity of worship, and certainly do not have the unity of rule, the traditional rule of the church under Catholic tradition. They don't have any, any of that unity. So how on earth can you give them holy communion? You know, they are not in union. Well, Vatican II and a- afterwards introduced the idea of being in partial communion. Well, how can you be in partial communion? How does that translate into communion, into union? 
if you're only partially in union, what, what, what is this? What, it does, it's a new category of thought, which is not traditional in the Catholic mind at all. It's something that the Catholic tradition would have utterly condemned. But they introduced it as their modernist concept in order to forward their idea of ecumenism, that you can have multiple faiths in the same church, and therefore multiple religions in the same church. Uh, more or less in the same church. I mean, it depends on how much of you is under the tent, whether it's just the camel's nose or his neck or his haunches or what. It's all a matter of degree, right? That's how it is with modernism. That's how it is with the Novus Ordo. It's not Catholic at all. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I, I, there's a decree um, that uh, Pope... Benedict XV issued a motu proprio um, back in uh, 1918, and he talked about, in fact, the the, um, the new code of canon law, right? The motu proprio. He issued the the, the basically ground rules behind the the concept of the new code of canon law, which. Uh, superseded the decree uh, code, basically, that had gone back to the 1200s under Gratian, Grazianus. And um, that was, you know, a very interesting statement of Pope, Pius, uh, Pope uh, Benedict XV, actually. Some people actually raised the question then, uh, also, of papal authority over canon law. But the fact is that in the 1917 Code of Canon Law, it's very, very clear, I think it's Canon 218 and following, uh, talks about the authority of the Roman pontiff. And the Roman pontiff uh, has complete jurisdiction, utter and complete jurisdiction over the church, but he's only the vicar of Christ, and he himself remains subject to the divine law. So to the extent that uh, ecclesiastical law is human law, to the extent that the code of canon law is simply human law. The Pope is not subject to it. To the extent that the code of canon law of the Church expresses and must express the divine law of God, the Pope is absolutely subject to that. And he cannot deviate that from that. So, um, you know, you have a, a practical situation where you have, let's say, the code of law of the church, and you have the individual concrete circumstances. And the ecclesiastical law, the human law, does not apply to every single possible circumstance. And there can, are and can be exceptions. In fact, the church, the law of the church actually acknowledges that fact. But where you have divine law, you do not have exceptions. Right? The Pope cannot make exceptions to divine law nor can he be accepted, accepted from divine law. He himself is subject to it. So if you have a code of canon law which sanctions giving what we would, as Catholics, understand to be holy communion, to non-Catholics, you would say, there you have a breach of the divine law, the divine tradition of the faith there. The very meaning of what holy communion is, the very meaning of the unity of the church, is at stake in this. There you have something that is horrific and certainly would give one grounds to say, what is the authority behind this? To question the authority promulgating that, endorsing it, sanctioning it. Right? <clears throat> so one can argue from the idea of a conclave, you know, oh, well, there was something tainted about the conclave. Look, they changed all the rules. They added the number of cardinals. Right. clearly almost doubling the number of cardinals so they could stack the deck. Then they said any cardinals over 80 years old couldn't vote. Clearly, right, a ploy to eliminate traditional cardinals, right, and shifting the entire vote toward the modernists. Then they downgraded the number of votes necessary to elect a Roman pontiff from a two-thirds majority to a simple majority, 50% plus one vote. And they did this all manifestly, manifestly for the sake 
of doing exactly what Democrats do, okay? Uh, loading the deck, marking the deck, um, uh, just guaranteeing that they're going to, you're going to sway, sway this and get, carry the day to get a modernist um, plant in there, in, in, the, in the, not the Oval Office, right, but in the Vatican. Um, and um, that's obviously very dangerous. One could argue from that point of view alone. One could say, okay, well, does the Pope have the authority to, to increase the number of cardinals? Well, yes, you, you might make that argument. You could say from the standpoint of tradition does, he, tradition, does he have the right to overrule Catholic tradition entirely in this regard? I suppose one could make an argument against it. But nonetheless, I mean, insofar as that it is an ecclesiastical decision of 70 cardinals, <clears throat> one could say, well, the Pope would have the authority to increase the number of cardinals in the College of Cardinals. Would the Pope simultaneously have the right to rule out, uh, to, to simply invalidate the votes of cardinals once they reach the 80th birthday, their 80th birthday, and say they no longer have the right to vote. Well, I mean, it was the very idea of the cardinals as a clergy of Rome, traditionally, that the cardinals who were the clergy of Rome would have the right to vote for the Roman pontiff. Going back to the earliest days of the church, this is Catholic tradition. Would a pope have the right to completely obviate that and crush that? tradition of the church. It's saying, well, you cardinals, okay, we recognize you as the clergy of Rome, but basically we're telling you now, after all these centuries, you don't have the right to vote. We're not going to recognize your right to vote. Would a pope have a right to do that? One could say, well, insofar as it was an ecclesiastical prescription, I would say he would have the right to do that. But insofar as it is embedded in apostolic tradition or Catholic tradition, that this is what was done when St. Peter himself died, that the clergy then of Rome, left by St. Peter and St. Paul, chose the successor of Peter. I mean, that's, that's going back to an apostolic tradition there. Would any uh, pope, John XXIII or any other, have any right, any power to, to abrogate that tradition in, in favor, especially motivated by a desire, by the intention of subverting the whole process? That's a question. That's a serious question, I think. That I don't, I've never seen a serious answer to. Except people saying, some people will say, well, it doesn't matter. Others say, oh, obviously he couldn't do that. You know, he wouldn't have the power to do that. But they're just talking about what their personal impressions are. And, uh, and then the idea of, uh, again, subverting the vote and saying, we don't need a two-thirds majority. We're just going to have a 50% a plus one majority to elect a pontiff. Well, there, was those, there were those who were saying, well, the church had that prescription of two-thirds majority of the cardinals for a very important reason. Because if you had an election which required half the cardinals plus one to elect a pontiff, if any one of those votes was illegitimate because it was, let's say, bribed, done due to bribery, or someone was not compos mentis, not mentally, uh, uh, shall we say, composed <laughs> at the time, so his vote was not a, uh, the act, a human act, a deliberate and conscious, intelligent human act, that that would mean that that was an invalid election. That man was never validly elected the Pope. Um, that's the risk you have when you have a majority of one electing. I mean, one could argue, well, this is highly improved, you know. Uh, there's a reason why the church traditionally had that prescription there. So I think one could actually mount a pretty serious argument that a pope, in, in changing these things, uh, was not merely dealing with the ecclesiastical law as it is expressed in the Code of Canon Law, but he was actually attacking, a Catholic, attacking Catholic tradition, which certainly exceed, exceeded his competence. By the way, if you read um, <laughs> from the Code of Canon Law here, about uh, the authority of the Roman pontiff. This is the 1917-18 code here. Canon 2.18. The Roman pontiff, the successor in primacy to blessed Peter, has not only a primacy of honor, but supreme and full power of jurisdiction over the universal church, both in those things that are pertain to faith and morals, and in those things that affect the discipline and government of the church, spread throughout the whole world. 
The power is truly Episcopal, ordinary, and immediate, both over each and every church and over each and every pastor, and faithful, independent from any human authority. Okay? So that's pretty strong. Pretty strong language there, okay? Doesn't make the Pope the God of God or the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't put him over his authority. He can't abrogate or challenge the authority of Christ, clearly. But it goes on to say here, uh, Canon 219, the Roman pontiff legitimately elected, legitimately elected, interesting, immediately upon accepting the election, notice when he accepts the election, obtains by divine law the full power of supreme jurisdiction. And see, this raises the second question here of Francis Bergoglio, uh, again, with the, with the um, St. Gallen Mafia, right, who set up that choice of Francis by all of their intrigues and campaigning about the legitimacy of that election. There are serious questions that arose from that. And then about Francis accepting the election, because he doesn't even believe in the papacy, as he's proven from the very beginning. He doesn't believe in the Catholic papacy. How could he accept that choice. So, see, there are two questions here about whether he could be legitimately elected in that, in that conclave and whether he could legitimately accept an office he doesn't even believe in. Uh, he believes in something else, though, which is not truly at all the Catholic, Catholic papacy. So, in other words, um, we have some serious questions afoot here, Tom, and it doesn't help to just ignore them and to offer uh, placebos to try to uh, uh, pacify people who question these things. You know? uh, there are serious questions that need to be addressed. There are serious good, good questions that need good answers. The good answers, really, I don't see that they've come yet. One thing we know is the right answer always and everywhere is the church. Is the answer the church has always given in times of crisis and confusion. Hold fast to Catholic tradition. This is the one thing the church has always said we must do in times of crisis, which is exactly what we're, what we're doing. It's exactly what we're up to. Mm -hmm. That and nothing more, nothing less. Yep. Nobody can make that wrong. Okay. I'm sorry. No, that's <laughs> great, Father. Um, we did uh, perhaps just have one more email that I wanted to get to, if, if you're up for it. Um, we had a viewer who, uh, who referenced a few um, different... Scripture verses from the um, book of the prophet Jeremiah, and uh, and some of these verses, the the phrase "Queen of Heaven" is used um, by the people who are talking to Jeremiah. They say that they worship this Queen of Heaven and made offerings to the Queen of Heaven. And um, this viewer says that there is a strong belief that associates Catholics with uh, with this, with these verses of offering um, sacrifices and offering worship to the Queen of Heaven. Have you heard this argument before, Father? I actually have heard of this before. Yeah. What do you make of it? They talk about Ishtar. But yes, I, I've heard about that periodically from time to time. And Protestants usually bring that up to try to undermine the Catholic veneration for the Blessed Mother. And I say, again, this is, uh, again, totally illegitimate. Okay, The people who bring it up probably are very impressed on it. They were probably impressed with it because they were probably told it by a minister or some kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, street preacher or whatever who picked it up from somewhere. But, uh, you know, if, if you go back and you look at, uh, they cite passages from the prophet uh, Jeremiah, right? And they're, they're, they're looking at a translation. The first thing is they're looking at English translation, right? And I wonder how many of them have actually gone back to look at the, the Greek of the Septuagint um, or even the Hebrew you know, of, the, um, of the Masoretic text or any, any of the, the Hebrew renderings of that. I wonder if they've actually gone back to look at the original language. Because where you have a translation, Queen of Heaven, you don't know if that really reflects what the original says. You know, it couldn't be totally bogus, you know. It seems that uh, St. Jerome, in writing the Vulgate, did, refer, did translate the text as the Queen of Heaven. Um, but to relate that to Catholic belief, I mean, St. Jerome wrote beautifully about the Blessed Mother. 
and defended her virginity, defended her perpetual virginity. So St. Jerome, who, who translated that text as Queen of Heaven, certainly did not relate that in any way to belief of the Blessed Mother. His veneration of Our Lady was not this, you know, idolatry of Ishtar, or had nothing to, had nothing to do with the pagan idea of any Queen of Heaven related, you know, spoken of in, uh, in that text, if it is actually an accurate translation. I, I understand from a, uh, well, I have it on good authority, right, from uh, uh, Cornelius Alapide, right, uh, that he pointed out that the Hebrew could be translated in various ways. And um, if you look at the Septuagint, if you look at the Greek, the Greek rendering of the book of... Um, Jeremiah. Of Jeremiah's in, uh, what is it, chapter seven, seven and chapter 44, mm-hmm. you don't find that rendering of a, the, the expression Queen of Heaven in the Greek of the Septuagint, which simply goes to reinforce uh, Cornelius Alapide's point that, the, that Hebrew, depending upon the, uh, the vowels that are inserted uh, in the words, can change the meaning quite dramatically which also indicates why you need the Catholic Church and the authority from Christ to interpret the scriptures so we know exactly what they mean. Because otherwise, they're just open to interpretation, which can be very wrong. The fact is, there's, no, there's absolutely no connection between the veneration we have for our Blessed Mother and the pagans' worship of Ishtar, which is tied to the moon. Right? In fact, uh, curiously enough, uh, well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll make that connection in a moment, but Catholic, Catholic veneration of our Blessed Mother goes back to the, uh, the book of the Bible, the book of Genesis itself, uh, the very origins of the human race, uh, the very fall of mankind. Uh, when God uh, con- condemned Adam to a life of sorrow and finally death, uh, condemned Eve, Eve also to a life of suffering and penance and childbirth. And then God in as recorded in Genesis three chapter uh, Genesis chapter three verse fifteen, made a prophecy, and the prophecy was made to Lucifer himself, who was the the, 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 the great tempter. And what God said to Lucifer was, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your her offspring and your offspring." And there, God spoke of this mysterious woman who would be the enemy of Satan, that God himself would place that enmity between the woman and Satan himself. She would be his enemy, uh, constituted by God as the enemy of Satan. She would never be his ally, indicating that she would not be his, his ally in his rebellion of sin. She would not be an ally of Satan in sinfulness, but she would be Satan's enemy. Now, we, we know who that is. We know who the offspring was. The offspring is our Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who is also the Son of Mary. And it is this woman who has this offspring, whom God speaks of, as the enemy of Satan. Now, if that isn't enough to make Christians venerate Our Lady as this great prophesied woman who would bring this Redeemer into the world, I don't know what you can tell them. It should be plenty right there to convince them there's something very special going on here. This woman is constituted by God to be the the enemy of Satan. And she would bring the Redeemer into the world as the enemy of Satan. That's what Catholic belief is. That's why we believe that she was conceived without sin. I mean, how else can you interpret that? Um, I'm sure you can misinterpret it a thousand ways. But just take it at the full force of the meaning of the prophecy. And, um, and there's many, much other evidence, too, about Our Lady's sinlessness, too. Um, St. Jerome believed that, even, though he was trans- even while he was translating uh, the, uh, the book of Jeremiah, as he did. He didn't relate it in any way to any worship of some pagan goddess of the, of the skies. <clears throat> um, but when we actually portray Our Lady um, as um, 
crushing the, sa- the, the head of the serpent. Notice that there's a crescent moon under her feet. And as though she is the dominator of this crescent moon. And it is like the domi- dominator of paganism. As though she's not only crushing Satan, but she's crushing paganism too. And um, this in no way, again, shows her allegiance with any, or her identity with any Ishtar. Uh, quite the contrary. Uh, Ishtar is more of a representative of Satan. And Our Lady is the one who crushes, crushes the head of that. So, um, anyway, it's entirely gratuitous, but you see, you know, Tom, when a non-Catholic picks up the scriptures, whether it be a translation in English or German, I mean, even even uh, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons, was quoting from his German Bible to support his teaching that we're all gods, right? Uh, gods in the making. Um, when 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 non-Catholics pick up the Bible, they have nothing to guide them by, but their own personal inclinations and prejudices. They don't have any church or any authority on the face of the earth that can tell them what it means and what it doesn't mean. And so they just go on the basis of their prejudices, as I say, and their personal inclinations to interpret it any way they want. And so they take the words of our Lord, um, uh, when at the Last Supper he says to the apostles, take this, eat, and all of you eat of this, this is my body which will be offered up for you. And how they interpret that away to mean nothing but, oh, it's just bread, but it represents his body at this moment for those who are gathered there. Contrary to what our Lord said, this is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It's what shall be shed for you and for many unto the forgiveness of sins. The very blood, he says, that was to be offered is there in that chalice. He's offering it to them. And they interpret that away. If they can, if they can take those statements of our Lord and interpret them the way they do, and render them meaningless, basically, then of course they're going to take a phrase like Queen of Heaven from Jeremiah and interpret that to be against Our Lady. They interpret a lot of things. Remember what Protestants are there. They're protestantes. They're protesters. That Their whole religion is based on protest. What are they protesting? Us, our belief. Their whole religion is based upon a protest against Catholicism. That's a pretty awful foundation for to, to establish a religion as a protest against against other people's religion. Um, so, in any case, and and the only way they could do that is by you know the only way they could have a semblance of anything Christian is by clinging to the Bible, even as they're denying tradition. Um, and then interpreting it in their own way. That's the, one of the pillars of, of Protestantism, Lutheran belief, private interpretation. So now every Protestant is his own pope. <laughs> authoritatively, authoritatively interpreting the sacred scriptures himself for himself. Okay, And nobody can tell him otherwise. Nobody has the authority to tell him he's wrong. This is what has become of, of uh, what so many people today consider Christianity. Well, unfortunately, it's being mirrored in Francis and his role as supreme pontiff of the Novus Ordo, the supreme pontiff of the new order. That's who he is. That's who he is. Anyway, we have here All Souls Day, if I can just get a word in there. <laughs> I know I have. <laughs> sure, Father. All Souls Day, most beautiful feast day, okay? A day when we on earth are empowered to reach, as it were, into eternity. Reach into the, the, the depths of purgatory and free souls from purgatory. How beautiful is that? Well, how powerful is that? And uh, you know, <laughs> what gives us the, the power to do that is the church itself, who has given us this... Uh, Indulgence. The indulgence is placed in our power now. And uh, there, there are those who actually appeal to a prayer of St. Gertrude. And according to the prayer of St. Gertrude, or the, the, the word that accompanies it, 
And by the way, I had a copy of that text here somewhere. Do you have that? Copy of that prayer? Okay. Okay. It's in itself, it's a perfectly fine Catholic <laughs> prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a prayer that Catholics should pray. The problem is not the prayer, but the promise that accompanies it very often. That if you pray the prayer, you'll release a thousand souls from purgatory. Guaranteed. Right? I've even seen it in print that if you pray this prayer once, you've just relieved 10,000 souls from purgatory. Wow. Guaranteed. Okay? We're upping the ante quite a bit here. Well, the prayer might well be from St. Gertrude. The promise definitely is not from St. Gertrude. Uh, St. Gertrude has submitted all of her writings to the judgment of the, of, the, of the Catholic Church, and she knew very well the Church never promises anything like that, even in her indulgences. And people ask, well, why should I, you know, go through all the trouble of gaining the indulgence for the souls in purgatory that the Church gives me? Um... I mean, look what the church is requiring of me to gain an indulgence for one of the poor souls. I not only have to pray six Our Fathers and six Hail Marys and six Glory Bees, devoutly, thoughtfully, but I also have to have the disposition in praying that I'm in the state of sanctifying grace. I make a good confession, receive absolution within the week, receive Holy Communion worthily within the week, and have my mind made up I, to overcome all habits of venial sin. That's setting the bar pretty high for a plenary indulgence. And on the other hand, I'm told, you know, all I have to do is say the, this prayer of St. Gertrude, which takes, you know, maybe 30 seconds, and I'm guaranteed to release a 1,000 or maybe 10,000 souls from purgatory, just automatically. Um, so what am I going to do? Well, obviously enough, there are people who have actually said, well, why should I spend five minutes praying these prayers that the Church gives me for the indulgence when I can, in the course of, of the same uh, time span, um, make ten times the prayer, uh, recite the prayer of St. Gertrude ten times and relieve, relieve well, uh, some would say 10,000, others would say 100,000 souls in purgatory, just by the very fact. Why would I, you know, weighing this? Well, you see, it doesn't come down to that, really. It's a false idea. The Church has warned us against that. Beware of those uh, false prophets, you might say, who are saying, oh, pray this prayer, do this act, send on this chain letter to ten others, and you'll automatically releasing, be releasing ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred million people from purgatory or whatever else. And uh, beware of that, because that is not the voice of the church, and it's certainly not the voice of God saying this. This is somebody else making this up. It has nothing to do with reality, certainly not with the reality of the faith. But say this, yes, pray that prayer of St. Gertrude, as we see it, because it's a very Catholic prayer. But don't become superstitious about it. Don't believe the promise that comes with it, because it's not in the recolta. It doesn't come from the church. <clears throat> Think of the indulgence that the Church gives us on this holy day, this beautiful day of All Souls Day. What enables us to make this prayer and gain this indulgence is that when we, when we do make these prayers, when we offer these prayers to God, we are offering them through the Church itself. It's as though it's that the fact that the Church herself is giving us this. This is the Church militant on earth, established by Christ himself. So when those prayers are presented to God in heaven, they are not just presented in the name of Tom Nagley or in the name of Father Jenkins. These are actually rising to God in the name of the Catholic Church that has given us this faculty, as it were, this indulgence. And this is what gives us prayers, that power. Not just that we as individuals are praying for the souls in purgatory. This is the Church itself, the Church militant, praying for the souls in purgatory, the Church suffering. That's what gives it this power that the Church lays these prayers before Almighty God in heaven and asks on behalf of the souls in purgatory who were members of the Church Militant at one time, who lived their lives here in the Church Militant, that God would have mercy and grant them this great benefit of plenary indulgence. You don't have that with any other prayers, as it were, um, except what the Church gives you by, ways, by way of indulgence, the entire Church interceding.
So that's, that's where our focus should be, and that is what we should be doing on All Souls Day and whenever we have the indulgences accorded to us by the Church, realize this means that in offering those prayers, I'm not just acting as my poor, lonesome, sinful self, but I have the Church herself interceding and giving me a power that I, poor sinner, don't have. Uh, so, in any case, I just wanted to make a mm -hmm. case for that. Mm -hmm. Father, that, that question has come up before, and uh, one one possibility that I've heard um, is that perhaps our Lord told St. Gertrude that she herself, when she prayed that prayer, that um, because her prayers were so powerful with him, that he would he would personally release a thousand mm -hmm. souls from purgatory because of the great love that mm -hmm. our Lord had for, for St. Gertrude. And is that possible, that our Lord might have told her that? It's not possible. I don't know that's related anywhere in her writings or memoirs. I don't know that it is. I don't think so. Um, but uh, it is possible, and this is another thing, as you say, Tom, that's very worthy of consideration, that this is a Saint Gertrude who, in praying this, because of the great devotion and her tremendous love for God, perhaps our Lord gave her that power. Could he do that? Of course he could. But um, that doesn't mean that you and I can appropriate that and say, well, if God, if Jesus, our Lord and Savior, um, gave this to her, then I guess, you know, he must have given it to me too. It doesn't follow necessarily. Um, you're right. It would be totally a, uh, a prerogative given to her because of her, her great love for God. I don't know that you and I would claim to match that love for God. Nope. Someday, we hope and pray. <laughs> I can't judge you, but I, I would say it's certainly wise <laughs> to me. Well, Father, uh, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for the Masses that you offered today and every day. Oh, and certainly. And welcome to yep. God bless you and uh, all of our listeners. Absolutely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.